Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from What is Art? by Leo Tolstoy. Published in 1904, This book looks at what art is from the perspective of Leo Tolstoy. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thanks to everyone who wrote in during the week, and for all the Anchor supporters and Patreons, I continue for your continuing support of the show with your monthly donation. It really does help me continue to bring out more episodes for you. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to also say thank you is to leave a five-star review in your iTunes or podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. It would also be awesome if you are able to share the podcast with someone who you might know who may need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Boy to Sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings.
What is Art? by Leo Tolstoy What thoughtful man has not been perplexed by problems relating to art? An estimable and charming Russian lady I knew felt the charm of the music and ritual of the services of the Russo-Greek church so strongly that she wished the peasants in whom she was interested to retain their blind faith, though she herself disbelieved the church doctrines. Their lives are so poor and bare that they have so little art, so little poetry and colour in their lives. Let them at least enjoy what they have. It would be cruel to undeceive them, said she. A false and antiquated view of life is supported by means of art and is inseparably linked to some manifestations of art which enjoy and prize. If the false view of life be destroyed, this art will cease to appear valuable. Is it best to screen the error for the sake of preserving the art? Or should the art be sacrificed for the sake of truthfulness? Again and again in history, a dominant church has utilised art to maintain its sway over men. Reformers, early Christians, Puritans and others have perceived that art bound people to the old faith and they were angry with art. They diligently chipped the noses from statues and images and were wroth with ceremonies, decorations, stained glass windows and processions. They were even ready to banish art altogether for besides the superstitions it upheld, they saw that it depraved and perverted men by dramas, drinking songs, novels, pictures and dances of a kind that awakened man's lower nature. Yet art always reasserted her sway, and today we are told by many that art has nothing to do with morality, that art should be followed for art's sake. I went one day with a lady artist to Bodkin Art Gallery in Moscow. In one of the rooms on a table lay a book of coloured pictures issued in Paris and supplied, I believe, to private subscribers only. The pictures were admirably executed, but represented scenes in the private cabinets of a restaurant. Again, the newspapers last year printed proposals to construct a Wagner Opera House to cost, if I recollect rightly, £100,000 about as much as a hundred labourers may earn by fifteen or twenty years' hard work. 
the writers thought it would be a good thing if such an opera house were erected and endowed. But I had a talk lately with a man who, till his health failed him, had worked as a builder in London. He told me that when he was younger, he had been very fond of theatre going, but later, when he thought things over and considered that in almost every number of his weekly paper, he read of cases of people whose death was hastened by lack of good food. He felt it was not right that so much labour should be spent on theatres. In reply to this view, it is urged that food for the mind is as important as food for the body. The labouring classes work to produce food and necessaries for themselves and for the cultured, while some of the cultured class produce plays and operas. It is a division of labour, but this again invites the rejoinder that, sure enough, the labourers produce food for themselves, and also food that the cultured class accept and consume, but that the artists seem too often to produce their spiritual food for the cultured only, and any rate that a singularly small share seems to reach the country labourers who work to supply the bodily food. Even were the division of labour shown to be a fair one, the division of products seems remarkably one-sided. Once again, how is it that often when a new work is produced, neither the critics, the artists, the publishers, nor the public seem to know whether it is valuable or worthless. Some of the most profound books in English literature could hardly find a publisher or was savagely derided by leading critics, while other works once acclaimed as masterpieces are now laughed at or utterly forgotten. A play which nobody now reads was once passed off as a newly discovered masterpiece of Shakespeare's and was produced at a leading London theatre. Are the critics playing blind man's bluff? Are they relying on each other? Is each following his own whim and fancy? Or do they possess a criterion which they never reveal to those outside the profession. Such are a few of the many problems relating to art which present themselves to us all, and it is the purpose of this book to enable us to reach such a comprehension of art and of the position art should occupy in our lives as will enable us to answer such questions. The task is one of enormous difficulty. Under the cloak of art, 
so much selfish amusement and self-indulgence tries to justify itself, and so many mercenary interests are concerned in preventing the light from shining in upon the subject, that the clamour raised by this book can only be compared to that raised by the silversmiths of Ephesus when they shouted, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Elaborate theories blocked the path with subtle sophistries or ponderous pseudo-eurudition. Merely to master these and expose them was by itself a colossal labour, but necessary in order to clear the road for a statement of any fresh view. To have accomplished this work of exposure in a few chapters is a wonderful achievement. To have done it without making the book intolerably dry is more wonderful still. In chapter 3, even Tolstoy's powers fail to make the subject interesting, except to the specialist, and he has to plead with his readers not to be overcome by dullness, but to read these extracts through. Among the writers mentioned, English readers miss the names of John Ruskin and William Morris, especially as so much that Tolstoy says is in accord with their views. Of Ruskin, Tolstoy has a very high opinion I have heard him say, I don't know why you English make such a fuss about Gladstone. You have a much greater man in Ruskin. As a stylist too, Tolstoy speaks of him with high commendation. Ruskin, however, though he has written on art with profound insight, and has said many things with which Tolstoy fully agrees, has, I think, nowhere so systematised and summarised his view that it can be readily quoted in the concise way which has enabled Tolstoy to indicate his points of essential agreement with home, Veron and Kant, even the attempt to summarise Kant's aesthetic philosophy in a dozen lines will hardly be of much service, except to readers who have already some acquaintance with the subject. For those to whom the difference between subjective and objective perceptions is fresh, a dozen pages would be none too much. And to summarise Ruskin would be perhaps more difficult than to condense Kant. As to William Morris, we are reminded of his dictum that art is the workman's expression of joy in his work. By Tolstoy's, as soon as the author is not producing art for his own satisfaction, does not himself feel what he wishes to express, a resistance immediately springs up. And again, in such transmission to others of the feelings that have arisen in him,
he the artist will find his happiness. Tolstoy sweeps over a far wider range of thought, but he and Morris are not opposed. Morris was emphasising part of what Tolstoy is implying. But to return to the difficulties of Tolstoy's task, there is one not yet mentioned, lurking in the hearts of most of us. We have enjoyed works of art, we have been interested by the information conveyed in a novel, or we have been thrilled by an unexpected effect, have admired the exactitude with which real life has been reproduced, or have had our feelings touched by allusions to, or reproductions of works, old German legends, Greek myths, or Hebrew poetry, which moved us long ago, as they moved generations before us. And we thought all this was art, not clearly understanding what art is, and wherein its importance lies. We were not only attached to these things, but attributed importance to them, calling them artistic and beautiful, without well knowing what we meant by those words. But here is a book that obliges us to clear our minds. It challenges us to define art and beauty, and to say why we consider these things that pleased us to be specially important. And as to beauty, we find that the definition given by aesthetic writers amounts merely to this, that beauty is a kind of pleasure received by us, not having personal advantage for its object. But it follows from this that beauty is a matter of taste, differing among different people, and to attach special importance to what pleases me is merely to repeat the old, old mistake, which so divides human society. It is like declaring that my race is the best race, my nation the best nation, my church the best church, and my family the best family. It indicates ignorance and selfishness. But truth angers those whom it does not convince. People do not wish to understand these things. It seems at first as though Tolstoy were obliging us to sacrifice something valuable. We do not realise that we are being helped to select the best art, but we do feel that we are being deprived of our sense of satisfaction in Rudyard Kipling. Both the magnitude and the difficulty of the task were therefore very good, but they have been surmounted in a marvellous manner. Of the effect this book has had on me personally, 
I can only say that whereas I was blind, now I see. Though sensitive to some forms of art, I was, when I took it up, much in the dark on questions of aesthetic philosophy. When I had done with it, I had grasped the main solution of the problem so clearly that, though I waded through nearly all the critics and reviewers had to say about the book, I never again became perplexed upon the central issues. Tolstoy was indeed peculiarly qualified for the task he has accomplished. It was after many years of work as a writer of fiction, and when he was already standing in the very foremost rank of European novelists, that he found himself compelled to face, in deadly earnest, the deepest problems of human life. He not only could go on writing books, but he felt he could not live unless he found clear guidance, so that he might walk sure-footedly and know the purpose and meaning of his life not as a mere question of speculative curiosity, but as a matter of vital necessity, he devoted years to rediscover the truths which underlie all religion. To fit him for this task, he possessed great knowledge of men and books, a wide experience of life, a knowledge of languages, and a freedom from bondage to any authority, but that of reason and conscience. He was pinned to know 39 articles, and was in receipt of no retaining fee, which he was not prepared to sacrifice. Another gift, rare among men in his position, was his wonderful sincerity and due, I think, to that sincerity, an amazing power of looking at the phenomena of our complex and artificial life with the eyes of a little child, going straight to the real, obvious facts of the case, and brushing aside the sophistries, the conventionalities, and the authorities by which they are obscured. He commenced the task when he was about 50 years of age, and since then he has produced nine philosophical or scientific works of first-rate importance, besides a great many stories and short articles. And all this time the problems of art. What is art? What importance is due to it? How is it related to the rest of life? Were working in his mind. He was a great artist, often upbraided for having abandoned his art. He, of all men, was bound to clear his thoughts on this perplexing subject and to express them his whole philosophy of life, the religious perception to which, 
with such tremendous labour and effort, he had attained, forbade him to detach art from life, and place it in a watertight compartment, where it should not act on life or be reacted upon by life. Life to him is rational. It has a clear aim and purpose, discernible by the aid of reason and conscience, and no human activity can be fully understood or rightly appreciated until the central purpose of life is perceived. You cannot piece together a puzzle map as long as you keep one bit in a wrong place, but when the pieces all fit together, then you have a demonstration that they are all in their right places. Tolstoy used that smile years ago when explaining how the comprehension of the text resists not him that is evil, enabled him to perceive the reasonableness of Christ's teaching, which had long baffled him, so it is with the problem of art. Wrongly understood, it will tend to confuse and perplex your whole comprehension of life. But given the clue supplied by true religious perception, and you can place art so that it shall fit in with a right understanding of politics, economics, relationships, science, and all other phases of human activity. The basis on which this work rests is a perception of the meaning of human life. This has been quite lost by some of the reviewers who have merely represented what Tolstoy says and then demonstrated how very stupid he would have been had he said what they attributed to him. Leaving his premises and arguments untouched, they dissent from various conclusions, as though it were all a mere question of taste. They say that they are very fond of things which Tolstoy ridicules, and that they can't understand why he does not like what they like, which is quite possible, especially if they have not understood the position from which he starts. But such criticism can lead to nothing. Discussions as to why one man likes pears and another prefers meat do not help towards finding a definition of what is essential in nourishment, and just so, the solution of questions of taste in art does not help to make clear what this particular human activity, which we call art, really consists in. The object of the following brief summary of a few main points is to help the reader avoid pitfalls into which many reviewers have fallen. It aims at being no more than a bare statement of the positions, 
For more than that, the reader must turn to the book itself. Let it be granted at the outset that Tolstoy writes for those who have ears to hear. He seldom pauses to safeguard himself against the captious critic and cares little for minute verbal accuracy. For instance, on page 144, he mentions Paris, where an English writer, even one who knew what an extent Paris is the art centre of France, and how many artists flocked thither from Russia, America, and all ends of the earth, would have been almost sure to have said France, for fear of being thought to exaggerate. One needs some alertness of mind to follow Tolstoy in his task of compressing so large a subject into so small a space. Moreover, he is emphatic a writer who says what he means and even, I think, sometimes rather overemphasizes it. With this much warning, let us proceed to a brief summary of Tolstoy's view of art. Art is a human activity, and consequently does not exist for its own sake, but it is valuable or objectionable in proportion as it is serviceable or harmful to mankind. The object of this activity is to transmit to others feeling the artist has experienced. Such feelings intentionally revoked and successfully transmitted to others are the subject matter of all art. By certain external signs, movements, lines, colours, sounds or arrangements of words, an artist infects other people so that they share his feelings. Thus art is a means of union among men, joining them together in the same feelings. Chapters 2 to 5 contain an examination of various theories which have taken art to be something other than this, and step by step we are brought to the conclusion that art is this and nothing but this. Having got our definition of art, let us first consider art independently of its subject matter, i.e., without asking whether the feelings transmitted are good, bad, or indifferent. Without adequate expression, there is no art, for there is no affection, no transference, no others of the author's feeling. The test of art is infection. If an author has moved you so that you feel as he felt, if you are so united to him in feeling that it seems to you that he has expressed just what you have long wished to express, the work that has so infected you is a work of art. In this sense, it is true.
that art has nothing to do with morality, for the test lies in the infection, and not in any consideration of the goodness or badness of the emotions conveyed. Thus the test of art is an internal one. The activity of art is based on the fact that a man, receiving through his sense of hearing or sight, another man's expression of feeling, is capable of experiencing the emotion that moved the man who expressed it. We all share the same common human nature, and in this sense at least, are sons of one father. To take the simplest example, a man laughs and another who hears becomes merry, or a man weeps and another who hears feels sorrow. Note in passing that it does not amount to art if a man infects others directly, immediately, at the very time he experiences the feeling, if he causes another man to yawn when he himself cannot help yawning, etc. Art begins when someone with the object of making others share his feeling, expresses his feeling by certain external indications. Normal human beings possess this faculty to be infected by the expression of another man's emotions. For a plain man of unperverted taste, living in contact with nature with animals, and with his fellow men say, for a country peasant of unperverted taste, this is as easy as it is for an animal, unspoiled scent to follow the trace he needs, and he will know indubitably whether a work presented to him does or does not unite him in feeling with the author but very many people of our circle, upper and middle class society, live such unnatural lives in such conventional relations to the people around them, and in such artificial surroundings that they have lost that simple feeling, that sense of infection with another's feeling, compelling us to joy in another's gladness, to sorrow in another's grief, and to mingle souls with another, which is the essence of art. Such people, therefore, have no inner test by which to recognise a work of art, and they will always be mistaking other things for art, and seeking for external guides, such as the opinions of recognised authorities, or they will mistake for art something that produces a merely physiological effect, lulling or exciting them, or some intellectual puzzle that gives them something to think about. And that concludes tonight's readings. 
I hope you enjoyed listening about art and I also hope that you're feeling drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode so that you can fall asleep very soon. Good night.